Good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. Uh, this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off uh, last time in chapter 3. Uh, Peter and John healed a lame man, which caused a, a huge stir in the temple and provided Peter with an opportunity to preach the gospel to the amazed crowd. And since we're covering a, a lot of ground this morning, we're going to jump right into um, the story, picking up at the start of chapter 4. So this is right at the end uh, of Peter's sermon from last week. Luke records, And they were speaking to the people. The priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody till the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So at the start of, of chapter 4, Luke summarizes the immediate result of Peter's sermon in chapter 3. And we see two polar opposite reactions to his proclamation of the gospel. On the one hand, you have the religious establishment, the, the priests, the temple captains, the, the Sadducees, who were greatly annoyed with Peter and John. Uh, the Sadducees in particular would have been, taken great issue with their teaching because along with, with disliking or even hating uh, Jesus Christ in general as a group, they completely rejected the idea of resurrection from the dead. So the religious elites were angry, and they grabbed Peter and John, they took him into custody. And then on the other hand, you have this, this different reaction coming from the crowd. The crowd react to Peter's preaching much more positively. As a matter of fact, Luke records that, that many responded to Peter's call for repentance and faith. In verse 4, he says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now to clarify, that, that 5,000 is the total number in the church so far. After Peter's sermon, uh, 3,000 came to saving faith, as sermon at Pentecost. And then after this sermon, 2,000 more follow suit. And also we should recognize that Luke was only counting heads of household. He said the number of men was about 5,000. So we can safely assume the actual number of members of the church in Jerusalem was far greater than 5,000 by Acts 4. And some estimate that the total number of people in all of Jerusalem at this point was about 40,000, which means a sizable chunk of the population had trusted in Christ in a short period of time. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all were who the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So Annas and, and Caiaphas, you may recognize those names because they were both present and, and active in the sham trial which sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And now they're running the same play with two of his disciples. And I want you to notice here that they don't dispute the miracle because everyone in that room was, a, was aware of what happened to the lame beggar. I mean, for decades, this man was paralyzed 
For decades, this man had no use of his legs. Each day, he laid down on a blanket. He asked for donations by the temple gate. And then unexpectedly, one day, he comes running through those same temple gates. Plus, the lame beggar wasn't quiet or calm about his sudden life change. He was skipping through the temple court, praising God. And so when they brought in Peter and John, they weren't asking, did you do this? They were asking them, okay, how did you do this? Right? Yesterday he couldn't walk, but now he can walk because you said get up and walk. So we know you did it, but we don't know how you did it. So tell us, how did you do it? In verse 8, Peter provides an answer. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, if we're actually being put on trial for a healing, if we're actually being put on trial for a miracle, then, verse 10, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then here comes a mic drop moment for Peter. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now let's camp out right here for a second. Because if we did a straw poll of this room, I would say the overwhelming majority would agree with Peter. Yes, there is salvation in no one else. Of course, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. But most of the secular world would disagree. Most of the secular world would take issue with what Peter is proposing. And I would argue that more of Lowndes County than we realize would disagree with Peter's statement. You know, a few years ago, Lifeway Research surveyed a large group of Americans on the subject of eternal life. And although the majority of the group claimed to believe in God, many of them had these confusing and and contradictory views of heaven and hell. While 54% of them agreed with the statement, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal life, 64% of the same group agreed that God accepts Worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and and Islam. Now, I'm not a a mathematician, but I can see a little bit of overlap in those numbers. If 54% are saying this and 64% are saying this, then we can assume that some that were surveyed said both, Jesus is the only way, and also God accepts worship from all religions. Then on top of that, 77% 
of those surveyed agreed with the statement that people must contribute their own effort for their salvation. And see, this is the, the basic view of religion for most of the world. Other worldviews are, are centered on working towards some sort of blessed afterlife. Even some atheists concede that if there is a God, then salvation would be found through doing good works. The leader of every major religion pointed to a way. Buddha pointed to an eightfold path for achieving enlightenment. Muhammad pointed to the five pillars of Islam for gaining paradise. Hindu leaders point to principles for finding peace with the world around them. Joseph Smith pointed to good works as a means of reconciling with a holy God. And L. Ron Hubbard pointing to his writings on Scientology for maximizing human experience. Every religious leader in human history has stood up before a crowd and said, let me show you a way, but only Jesus Christ said, I'm the way. I'm not going to show you away. I'm the way. See, they see the brokenness. They, they sense the need for healing. They recognize that human error is standing between them and peace, nirvana, enlightenment, paradise, or, or salvation. But when they assess the problem, they come back with solutions that are centered on rules, regulations, and behavior modifications. They focus on good works. They harp on human responsibility. But unlike his counterparts, Jesus doesn't point to a potentially better way. He says, I am the better way. Because I'm the way back to the Father. And so Peter is picking up on that teaching from Christ, and he is relaying it to these religious leaders in Acts 4. He's, he's, he's bringing up this basic tenet of the Christian faith that salvation comes through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all the religious leaders were, were shocked and appalled by this. Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them and is evident to all the inhabitants of Israel, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I, I love this picture of some of the most powerful men in Israel putting their heads together, assessing their options, weighing out their strategy, and coming back with a completely empty threat. Peter and John, we have talked it over, and y'all better stop it. Right now. We're serious. 
No more talk about Jesus in the public square. If you do it again, we're going to be forced to count to five, okay? It sort of gives you a picture of a, a parent with a toddler in a grocery store, and the toddler's just showing out, and the parent's just making all these threats, and the toddler just doesn't care, right? This is kind of what happens here. So they make these threats, and then in verse 19, Peter and John answered them, saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You do what you got to do, but we'll never stop experiencing, sharing our experiences with Christ. Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people who were all praising God for what happened. For the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so from here, um, that's kind of a nice little end of the story, right? That this man has been healed. Uh, many have heard the proclamation of the gospel. They tell them to go and speak of Jesus no more. They say, hey, you do what you got to do, but we're going to do what we got to do. And, and that, that's a nice little end to the story there. And for the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, uh, Luke kind of goes in some other directions and, and gives some glimpses of life in the early church, which we won't cover today. But in the middle of chapter 5, this conflict between the Jewish leaders, between the religious establishment, and the apostles picks back up and goes to another level. So flip over to chapter 5, and let's start looking at verse 17. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here. So verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. This is all twelve, okay, not just Peter and John, and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said to them, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So at this point, the high priest was furious. In his view, that the Jesus movement had shifted from a minor inconvenience to a full-blown problem. In chapter 4, he tried talking some sense into Peter and John, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. When they refused, he, he threatened them further, but it didn't matter because they're still sharing the gospel. So he had all 12 disciples thrown in prison to await trial before the council. But in the middle of the night, God sent an angel to let him out. And they went right back in the temple square and continued preaching the gospel. And these events set up a, a really funny moment at the expense of the religious leaders. Okay, they come from all over the empire. They put on their fancy hats and robes. They settle into their assigned seats. The high priest nods to the guards because they're ready to hold court for these religious fanatics. But then the guards find empty cells. And then we have this moment in verse 25. It says, And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Not a good look. Because then the captain with the officers went and brought them in, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
When they had brought them in, they sat them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, as we've mentioned, the high priest was very angry. When the disciples are brought back before the council, he says, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Okay, We clearly told you to stop it, and yet here you are filling all of Jerusalem with your teaching. Church, what if, if we just bring this into our context for a second, what if we filled all of Lowndes County with our teaching? What would happen? What would be the, the, the ripple effect into eternity if we set aside our fear, our apathy, our busyness, and we intentionally gauged others with the gospel? You know, we, we won't be threatened, arrested, or, or murdered for proclaiming Christ in the public square. And maybe one day, but South Georgia is a relatively safe mission field at the moment. You know, we may not encounter the same kind of dangerous situations, but we may be judged, we may be labeled, we may be mocked, we may carry a very low success rate of positive responses, but we must realize that God's plan for spreading the gospel is not something, it's someone. And when God calls your number, you must be obedient. When God freed the disciples, they went right back into the temple without a worry or care about the previous threats. And starting in verse 29, we can see why. It says, Peter and the apostles answered them, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given those who obey. See, Peter and the apostles had three options as the heat continued to turn up on them. They could stop. They could scale back. They could not be as public with their ministry. Or they could push all their chips to the middle and double down. They chose the latter because they were committed to obeying God rather than men. They stared down the council and proclaimed that the God of our fathers, the God of Israel, your God, raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted him. He established him as our leader. He helped him bring repentance. He came to cleanse us of our sin and give us opportunity to return to fellowship with a holy God. We are witnesses to his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and we will never stop talking about it. You know, we've mentioned before how when you share the gospel, you'll encounter uh, green lights, yellow lights, and red lights. Basically, a green light is, is someone who's open to the gospel. 
yellow light is someone who, who could go either way, kind of proceed with, with, uh, with caution in the way you present it. And then a red light is someone who has, has no interest, maybe even responds negatively or abrasively. And in those situations, you just politely exit the conversation. We can say confidently that the Jewish council was one of the reddest lights in church history. They weren't just opposed to the gospel. It made their blood boil. But Peter and company proclaimed the truth anyway, because God doesn't call us to share with some. He calls us to share with all. Now, you should use discernment and wisdom in this. You should realize if someone is a clear red light, you may be better served to to step back, to pray for them, to love on them, and, and to wait for a future opportunity to share with them. But at the same time, if we aren't careful, we can create bad habits where we determine beforehand who may or may not be willing to hear and receive the gospel. And the reality is, sometimes perceived green lights are actually red. And other times, perceived red lights are actually green. We won't truly know who will be receptive or who will be combative until we dip our toes into the waters of spiritual conversation. It's not our job to determine who's worthy of the gospel. It's our job to scatter gospel seeds everywhere we go, which God will water and grow. This is what the disciples were doing. Even though at this particular moment, it kind of feels like they're spreading seeds in a spiritual desert. Their message was not well received. Verse 33 makes this clear. It says, when they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. I'm thankful that I've never had a presentation of the gospel go that poorly, that someone wanted to kill me when it was done. I know y'all get annoyed sometimes when I preach a little bit too long, but never reached that point. So they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. In other words, be careful what you're about to do with these men. And he said to them, Men of Israel, excuse me, said, For these days, before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, it's not the Judas that you know from the Gospels, different Judas, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So the present case, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fall away. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found opposing God. 
So when the gospel is, is boldly proclaimed, it will evoke either repentance or rage. At, at Pentecost, Peter said some of the same things to, that he said to these men in the council, but in that case, thousands cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? How can we be saved? But here, same message, vastly different response. They were enraged. They wanted to kill them. They'd already had the Roman authorities get rid of Jesus. They're ready to use their connections again to discard the twelve. But just as tensions are reaching a bowling point, this Pharisee named Gamaliel called for a timeout, asked the guards to take the men outside, and he was this highly respected teacher in Jewish circles. He's one of those guys that when he spoke up, everyone listened. And he leveraged his influence to encourage them to exercise caution, and he and he used his he, he drew their attention to two failed revolutionary movements from the recent past. Thaddeus was a man who led a revolt early in the first century. He ended up getting killed because of it, and all of his followers dispersed. Uh, Judas the Galilean led a revolt against the Roman Empire. He was part of a, a group of fanatical Jews who wanted to overthrow the government, but he was killed, and his followers also scattered. So he, he brings these two stories in just to, to tell them, hey, let's, 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 let's step back from this for just a second. Okay, if, if these men are coming in here and saying all these things, they're leading this movement, and this movement is a man-made movement, then it's going to go just like these other movements have gone. Now, Israel had a history of having men come forward and claim to be a Messiah. Men come forward and claim, you know, all sorts of things, right? Because anyone can claim anything. And so Gamaliel's argument, Gamaliel's argument was these men could be the same. They could be just saying all these things and they're not true, and if that's the case, they'll just fall away. But, but you have to consider the possibility that maybe everything they're saying is true. And if everything they're saying is true, then you're not standing against 12 men. You're standing against 12 men and God. And so they, they listen to, to Gamaliel, and they reduce their, their sentence uh, from execution to flogging. They took his advice in verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, according to Old Testament law, that the legal limit for lashes was 40. So they probably received 39 lashes. The common practice of hard-hearted legalist was going right up to God's line without crossing. And after they whipped them, they sent them away. They ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus. They hoped this punishment would curb their enthusiasm, but it didn't. In fact, Luke says it, it, it rejuvenated them. Verse 41 says, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of of Jesus. And they continued preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. You know, when James says 
in his epistle, right there at the beginning of chapter 1, to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, this is exactly what he means. For the Christ follower, suffering is never without purpose. As a matter of fact, we can rejoice in suffering because we know that God is using it for our good and His glory. We know that He's using it to shape us, to, to mold us, to deepen us, to form us in the image of Christ. He's using it to push us closer to Him. He's using us, using it to, to drive us to seek His wisdom. He's using it to train us to trust in His sufficiency. He's using it to force us to depend on His resources, and He's using it to help us to focus on His future reward. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Pain is temporary. Struggle is temporary. It's temporary. Sickness is temporary. Hardship is temporary. Persecution is temporary, but our hope in Christ is eternal. Now the danger of a quick survey of Acts 4 and 5 is that we, we read it, we study it, we reflect on it, and we walk away thinking to ourselves, man, what a great story. And you maybe even say, I'm so inspired and encouraged by the example of the apostles. This week, I will be bolder about my faith at the office. This week, I'll invite my neighbor over for dinner one night, and I will speak with clear gospel conviction. This week, I will post scripture on my social media every day, Three times a day. But then, you don't follow through with that commitment. Or you do, but you become discouraged. Because you don't feel like you're making any sort of significant impact on others. Sometimes when you don't see the results, you're tempted to drop the pursuit all together. But we must realize the gospel boldness we see in Acts 4 is not an act of sheer human will. It's a measure of God's grace. So if we ask the question, how can we cultivate more bravery and courage in sharing the gospel? I'd argue we find two answers in chapter 4. And so if you want to increase in gospel boldness, here's two practical steps from the example of the apostles. The first one is this. Ask God for boldness. Ask God for boldness. You know, we skipped this earlier, but look at verse 23 of chapter 4. This is right after Peter and John have been arrested and released and Starting in verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went back to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So for the early church, prayer was their first response, not their last resort. So they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles, Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, so it's interesting that the majority of their prayer in the midst of desperate circumstances was dedicated to reflecting on the sovereignty of God over their situation. And then in verse 29, they finally get to their request. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Remember, the whole church was gathered together right after Peter and John were arrested threatened, and released from custody. And as they came together, they could have prayed for several things. They could have said, God, please give us religious liberty in the midst of the Roman Empire. Or, or please protect us from these threats. Or please bring salvation to those who are persecuting us. Lord, open their ears, soften their hearts, help their minds understand. And any of those requests would have been completely justified, but they didn't go that route. Instead, they said, Lord, grant us more boldness. Give us more boldness. And as H.P. Charles notes, God answered their prayer in three ways. First, he did something around them. He assured them of his presence by shaking their meeting place. Second, God did something in them. He, he filled them with the Holy Spirit. And, and to be clear, this wasn't another Pentecost or second baptism of the Spirit. As Charles says, it was a fresh infilling of the Spirit's enabling power to resist temptation, serve faithfully, and endure persecution. And third, God did something for them. They asked for the strength to continue speaking with boldness. And verse 31 says they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. Now James 4.2 says you don't have because you don't ask. And of course you can, you can take that and you can fill in the blank with whatever you want as some do. But the application is not you don't have a boat because you didn't ask God for a boat. Therefore, you start praying for a boat and God will give you a boat. That, that's not the point. But if you ask God for things which align for, with his will for you, then you'll receive them. If you say, God, in my office, I'm surrounded by unbelievers and I want to be a gospel light in the darkness. Please provide chances for me to engage in meaningful conversations with them. And when those opportunities arise, help me to speak the truth boldly. Listen, you can pray for a boat, and God may or may not give you a boat, but if you ask for it, He will give you boldness. 
He will show up in those moments and give you the words to say and the strength to say them. So we ask God for boldness. And then let's look at one more thing. How do you cultivate gospel boldness? Well, secondly, you spend time with Christ. This may seem really basic, and you may say, Pastor, this isn't that that groundbreaking, that we should pray and spend time with Jesus, but I want you to look at verse 13 again in chapter 4. It says, When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Luke wants us to understand that when Peter finished speaking, the council recognized that he and John had been with Jesus. And this is not the council sitting back in their chairs and saying, you know, I vaguely remember their faces. Where do we know them from? And then as soon as Peter finishes speaking, they all go collectively, oh yeah, I know where I remember you guys from. You used to be with Jesus. No, this is the council connecting Peter's teaching to Christ's teaching. This is the council saying, didn't Jesus claim to be the only way? Didn't Jesus speak with unusual authority and conviction? Didn't Jesus use Psalm 118 to rebuke his enemies? They see the obvious similarities and they determine these men belong to Christ. You will not speak for Christ boldly unless you know him deeply. And as you pray to him, as you learn about him, as you trust in him more and more, as you gather with others who believe in him, you will increase in gospel boldness. You'll say what Peter and John said in verse 20, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. You don't need profound biblical knowledge. You don't need a firm grip on the three circles or the Romans road. You don't need to be an incredible Christian apologists. You need nothing more than your story. If Jesus changed your life, then you can share your story. Go and tell somebody in Lowndes County this week about what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example that we see with uh, Peter and John and, and the, other, the other apostles and their, their boldness to speak the gospel even in the face of, of persecution. Lord, we're honest. We bypass many opportunities to have meaningful gospel conversations, not because of persecution or, or danger or, or suffering or anything like that, just honestly because we feel like it might cause an awkward tension over the dinner party or uh, 
over our work environment or, or whatever it may be. And so, Father, I pray that you would you would help us to step back from our daily lives and, and to and to consider things on an eternal scale. To remind us that that heaven and hell are are real, and uh, to, to to help us share our story all over Lowndes County. Lord, we know this this boldness doesn't magically descend upon us. We know this boldness is learned, this boldness is is cultivated. And and so help us to to build it up in in one another, that we would, would come together here on Sundays and, and rally together and encourage and exhort one another and then go out in this community as, as, as gospel lights that are shining all over Lowndes County and illuminating the darkness. Father, that's our prayer, that we would be that church. So Lord, help us to be that church. Help us to be faithful, to do what you've called us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.